So when I was 17 years old, I had been driving with a license for about a year, and I started to want to have more responsibility and freedom to, to be able to, you know, spend time with friends, stay out maybe a little bit later at night. And uh, as any of you that have been parents of teenagers can imagine, my parents were maybe a little worried. They wanted to make sure that I was going to be safe and that they, you know, knew who I was with and all of that stuff. So my parents, uh, they loved me. They created some boundaries for me. Uh, and one of these boundaries is what I came to know as the curfew. <laughs> the curfew was the non-negotiable time that I had to be home by. It was not a ballpark of, you know, as long as you're home around this time, uh, give or take 20 or 30 minutes, it, that was not it at all. It, it was a very set time, uh, and, and if I didn't get home by that time, I knew there was going to be big trouble. And so there was a Friday night where I was spending time with friends after a football game. Uh, we went, uh, I think, probably to go get food or uh, go get ice cream or something after the football game. Had a great time spending with friends, but I was careful to be looking at the time because I did not want to miss my curfew. I, uh, I saw that, um, you know, I looked at my watch, I, I realized, oh, I have about 30 minutes and that's uh, just enough time to drop, drop some of my other friends off at home and to get home, so I need to leave. And I told my friends, hey, we need to go. We got in my car. We started to drop off my friends, and we dropped off the first friend, and, uh, and he got out, and that was fine. Dropped off the second friend, and uh, she went in her house. And as we were leaving that neighborhood, uh, I turned to my, my best friend sitting next to me who lived in the street over from mine. I said, man, this is great. Uh, we got 15 minutes to get home, but it only takes 10 minutes from right here. And I started to get really kind of proud of how responsible I was being. As a 17-year-old, I was going to prove to my mom that I could get home on time. I could leave hanging out with my friends and, and follow the rules. And I was going to get more privileges because of this. I was starting to, to get, you know, good job, Thomas, self-congratulatory. Stopped at a stop sign uh, as, as we went out of the neighborhood. And then my engine died. And I, I tried to start it again. I tried to, and it wouldn't turn over. And my best friend looked at me and he said, Thomas, did you run out of gas? And I had that, that thought of, no, 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 no. I did everything I was supposed to do. I left the, the, the time hanging out with my friends on time. I made my other friends leave. I dropped them off. And then uh, I had time to spare. I was even going to get home a little early why was this happening to me? This was not fair. And, and I started to get worried because I knew my mom was not going to be happy. Uh, and, but then I, I started to tell myself, you know what? I bet, I, I bet if I explain this, my mom will surely understand um, that I had been very responsible. I had done everything basically the way I was supposed to. And uh, it just, you know, I happened to run out of gas and that was just kind of a little blip. Maybe she would just let this one go. And so, so I, I stopped being worried about that, and I started thinking, I need to get home. So, uh, so I, I did what a 17-year-old would do in the time, not call your own parents, call your friend's parents. I don't know why I did that, but at the time, it seemed like the right thing to do. Uh, they got me some gas, and then I went to the gas station to actually fill my tank up all the way so it didn't happen again. Got back to my neighborhood, dropped off my best friend, walked in my door, 30 minutes past my curfew, and my mom was sitting at the kitchen table when I walked in and with a less-than-pleased look on her face. And so I decided, I'm just going to clear this up right, right here, right now. I said, Mom, don't worry, I'm okay, and 
you know what, I, I, did, I left the restaurant on time. Uh, I just ran out of gas, and so it's not really my fault that I missed my curfew. And, and so, just so you know, but I left the restaurant on time. I had everything planned. It was going to work out perfect. And she said, okay, well, Thomas, I'm glad you're okay, uh, but you're, you're home past your curfew, and so you're grounded. I'm like, what? But mom, I, I left the restaurant on time. I, I just ran out of gas. It's not my fault. And she said, Thomas, that, that is exactly your fault, and you're still grounded. And if I'm being honest, it probably took me months or years to realize that my mom was right. <laughs> you know how, how that happens? And all of a sudden, uh, for me, it was like you go to college and you realize your parents are a lot smarter than they seemed when you were in high school. Um, but, you know, I look at that, and, and the way that I define the problem really led to a different solution than what my mom arrived at. So I, for me, the problem was the car inconveniently ran out of gas. And that's a big problem, but the solution to that problem is simple. If my mom would just uh, be a little gracious and uh, not follow through with the consequence, I'd be fine. My mom knew that the problem was different. The problem was uh, I had not yet learned all of the uh, responsibilities of driving and operating a vehicle. And so the solution was that I was going to have to learn uh, what it took to make sure that you filled up your car with gas and you took care of it the right way so that this didn't happen. And, and eventually, I learned that. I haven't run out of gas on the road since then. Um, I've been close a few times, but I haven't run out. You know, what strikes me about this story, it's kind of fun for me to look back at it at this point, but what really strikes me about it is um, the way that you define a problem changes how you arrive at a solution. It really changes the solution you arrive at. I wonder sometimes if, uh, if we don't have a similar thing happening with our Christian faith. And here's what I mean. We know that we are people of the new covenant. Uh, we, know, we know that. But why do we have a new covenant? What happened to the old covenant? What was the problem with it that, that it made this need for there to be a new covenant? You know, I think for a lot of us, we know that the Bible is split into an Old Testament and a New Testament uh, did you know the word testament comes from the word covenant? So, so in scripture, it actually, we have a book of the old covenant, a book of the new covenant. Kind of interesting, right? Um, I wonder if for a lot of us, we don't just kind of pick up the story three quarters of the way through and we read the end and we're like, yeah, Jesus, that's great. Uh, but, but we're like, well, I don't really need to go back and read the beginning. I'm just happy about the end. And I think if we were to go back uh, to look at the old covenant, you know, how we determine what, what was the problem in the Old Covenant, that changes how we understand the New Covenant. And it, that changes how we live into the New Covenant and be people of the New Covenant. Uh, so today I want to look at that. Um, we're going to look at a passage in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31. It's the only place in the Old Testament where the words New Covenant are used. Kind of interesting. Uh, and there's these four verses where God speaks through Jeremiah and he tells the people this. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Before we dig into this, will you pray with me? Lord God, we are thankful that you are here with us, and we're thankful that uh, you have good news for us today, that we are people of your new covenant. God, I pray that as we look at your word today, you would help us understand what that means. Help us to uh, have a deeper understanding of the relationship that you invite us to have with you, of the salvation that you provide for us through Jesus. And I pray, God, that you would be working in our hearts by your Holy Spirit uh, to deepen us in our faith, to draw us closer to you, and let us live as your people are called to live. God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. You, God, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Jeremiah lived about 600 years before Jesus did, and he lived in a time when Israel, you know, it had been a kingdom at one point under King David, and then uh, some of the descendants, uh, some of David's uh, grandchildren didn't do so well. They split the kingdom into two, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And then uh, by the time Jeremiah was living, uh, the northern kingdom had disobeyed God enough that they had ceased to be a kingdom. They had been taken over by the Assyrians. Jeremiah lived in the time leading up to and during uh, when the Bab- Babylonians uh, captured the southern kingdom and exiled the people. And so if you go read the book of Jeremiah, it's, it's not the happiest of messages, um, and, and it just, it's just not. It's uh, a lot of warnings where Jeremiah says, hey, um, stop worshiping other gods. That's not going to go well for you. Stop doing these other uh, practices. Stop having child sacrifices. Stop mistreating the poor. Stop not following the law. It's not going to go well for you if you keep disobeying God like this. And, and they don't. They don't change, Right? And so then Jeremiah starts to tell them what's going to happen, and they're going to be taken over. They're going to lose the promised land, and they're going to lose the relationship they have with God. And in the midst of all this very uncomfortable message, I think, in Jeremiah, what's amazing is there's four chapters that are hopeful uh, prophecies. Chapters 30 through 33, it's known, it's kind of a compilation of some of Jeremiah's prophecies. It's known as the Book of Comfort or the Book of Consolation. And it's interesting, that, that's where this passage that we're reading comes from. So I want to look at what is the hope that he provides? How is that hopeful? What in the world could be hopeful for people being taken into exile? And, and here's what he says. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So God starts off by, by basically saying, I know it's not good right now. I know things are bad, but I'm not going to leave it that way. And God, in just the beginning of this, we see God's faithfulness to the people he loves, the people he wants to bring back into relationship with himself. The good news he provides for them is that he's going to make a new covenant. Now, what what is good news about a new covenant? Well, to understand that, we have to understand what what was good news about the old covenant, and uh, and then we're going to dig in a little bit about how they're different. But to understand uh, the old covenant, we look at the areas in in the... in the one or two thousand years before Jesus, in the Mesopotamia area, that, that uh, basically the Middle East, uh, covenant was really, uh, it, it was a common tool that was used to bring two parties into a relationship. 
into an agreement on the terms of the relationship. And so covenants would be made between different nations. They would be made between different people. Uh, there was one covenant. Uh, if you want to impress your friends and use some really theological words, it's a suzerain vassal treaty. Yeah, uh, they won't know what it means, and, and you might not either, but that's okay. But, but that kind of covenant, it was meant for a king to make a covenant with a people where the king had money and land and power, and the people needed land and protection and provision. And it was a way for those people to become the subjects of that king. And I know in our day and age, we, we live in a democracy, and, and that's really good. We have a hard time understanding that as a good thing. But I promise in, that, in those days, that, that was the surest form of protection and freedom you could have is to have a strong king be the one who protects you, provides for you, who you live under their rule. And so in these covenants, there were different parts. Uh, that I'm not going to go through all of them, but one, one part was the stipulations, or the law, as it was called. These were, what did the people have to do to continue to be in the covenant? And just in the secular treaties in those days, uh, it, it was all geared towards there being a loyalty to the king. If, if, for the people to be loyal only to that king. Uh, and so uh, there, were, there were the rules. There were a lot of rules around that. And then there were parts where uh, there was the assurance of blessing if you kept the rules, kept the stipulations, kept the law. And then there was the, the assurance of consequences if you broke uh, the law. Now what's interesting, the covenant God makes with the people of Israel uh, through Moses. He does this after, after Moses leads the people out of Egypt. They go to Mount Sinai, right? Uh, Moses comes, comes down with the Ten Commandments. That's actually a part of this, uh, this formulaic treaty. It's kind of neat. Those are the stipulations where God is saying, I want to make you my people and protect you and provide for you and give you a land to live in. Uh, but here's the, here's the stipulations. Here's what you have to do. And it, what's interesting, the first, co- the first uh, commandment is you should have no other gods covenant faithfulness that loyalty is what god was after Uh, and then in exodus and you can read later there's assurance of blessing if they keep the law of consequences if they don't keep it all all of this is is part of uh, an ancient near east treaty Uh, and god uses this covenant treaty to bring people back into relationship with him it's really a beautiful thing if you think about it. Uh, the God of the universe reaches into a certain part of the world at a certain time in a certain place, and he uses what's already around them and familiar to them to bring them back and make them his people again. How, how, how gracious must that God be, right? That he uses something that, that would speak to them. Uh, kind of like Jesus coming into our midst, but the Old Testament version, I think. Well, uh, the new covenant is good news. That's why I was talking about covenant. Uh, You know, the old covenant was broken. The people didn't follow the law. And so they were suffering the consequences. And as they're suffering the consequences, the promise of a new covenant is the most hopeful word they could have heard. It's God saying, I'm not done with you, even though you haven't kept up your part, but I'm going to make another way for you to be my people again for you to be in relationship with me, and so I can be your God. So that's the word of hope that we start off with. And then Jeremiah says this, It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. 
And you can see that hint to covenant faithfulness, where God says he's the husband. He, he, uh, he compares a covenant to a marriage, where fidelity is the expectation, right? And he's saying he kept his part, we just didn't keep our part. Um, and it's, it's interesting that God starts off by telling the people that it's not going to be like the covenant that you knew before. Like, okay, that's probably good, because the covenant that we knew before didn't work, uh, but how is it going to be different? How is the new covenant different from the old covenant? And before we keep reading Jeremiah, I, I, uh, you know, I feel like we all hear things and, and we, all, we all have assumptions sometimes about how God works, about how, how the Bible works. And uh, there's these common things that I hear people bring up sometimes that I want to just throw out there. Um, I think we all bring these to the table in different ways. Um, but, but they're interesting to look at and to consider. So uh, if we were going to ask... Uh, what is different about the new covenant? Someone might say, well, uh, did God change? Maybe God changed. And, and the way that I see people usually talking about this is they usually refer to the Old Testament God who's very wrathful and then the New Testament God who's loving. And it's almost like sometimes we think that there's a different God or that God changed from old to new. And the inconsistency I see with that is that God says himself that he's eternal and that he does not change. And, and, and for me, as I've looked at God's character in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, I see such a loving God and such a holy God. And I see a God that is both gracious and just. And I see that in the Old and the New Testament. So I don't think God changed. I don't think that's the key to understanding the new, the new covenant. So maybe it's something else. Maybe we could say, did the law change? Maybe. So let's look at this. So the old, the old covenant has the Ten Commandments and a bunch of other rules and regulations, right? Uh, and the new covenant, doesn't Jesus say just love God and love your neighbor? And don't get me wrong, I like that option. If I was picking, if I was God, we all have these things, right? If I was God, that might be what I picked. Like, let everyone off the hook. Just make, make the rules a lot easier. Uh, that's surely what I feel like my mom should have done, right? <laughs> the problem with that, Jesus actually says at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And he, he says that it's, it's actually, it's not helpful to take away parts of the law, to pretend they're not there. Um, the law is upheld from Old Covenant to New. It's still valuable. It's still important. Now, little asterisk, and you can come talk to me about this later if you want. I can't get into all the details of this, but there are parts of the law that, that are adjusted from Old to New. And things that have to do with Israel as a nation, uh, things that have to do with the temple sacrificial system, and uh, certain things that Jesus himself brings up, like the food laws, uh, there, there are some changes and adjustments, uh, but by and large, what I'm saying is I don't think in the new covenant, God is just totally relaxing his standards. That's actually not what God's doing. He actually still has very, very high standards for his people because he wants them to be restored to the original goodness, right? All right, so what's another option? We'll try one more time. Uh, maybe the need to follow the law changed. This is a popular one partly because uh, there's, a, there's a really a kernel of truth in it. Um, the kernel of truth in it is that in the New Covenant, Jesus makes a, a more comprehensive way to be forgiven. He is a once-for-all sacrifice that, uh, that overrides the need for a temple sacrificial system, right? 
And just like we prayed a prayer of confession earlier in this worship service, and then we were assured with these words that, uh, that Christ has died for us and we are forgiven. We should rest in that. That should be something we stand on. Uh, we don't ever move past that. We always come back to it. We need to remember it, and it makes us worship. But that's, that's not where the journey ends, and that's where I think we fail to understand sometimes that just because we've been forgiven... Uh, it doesn't mean God doesn't have expectations for how we're supposed to live. If God didn't have any expectations, then, you know, I'm forgiven, so take me now, Jesus, I'll just go live in heaven. But that's actually not the picture of the Christian life that we see in the New Testament, right? Okay, so, so what's different about the, the New Covenant? We still haven't answered the question. We found some not quite so good answers. Jeremiah is going to tell us. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. These words are powerful, and it's interesting. God doesn't say he's going to get rid of the law, but he does say he's going to do something different with it, right? It's not going to be written on tablets that live in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, and get pulled out occasionally to read and remembered, uh, it's going to be written where? On our hearts. The heart in that the Hebrew uh, language, heart is, is not just an organ, it's also what they understood to be the seat of your um, decision-making and your will. And uh, kind of like, like we talk about the mind, actually. We, we talk about the mind in our Western society as decision-making function. Uh, the Hebrews talk about the heart as having that function. So what this is saying is that God is going to do something within us so that we don't just know the law in our heads, but we actually start to want to follow it in our hearts. God's going to make a new way for us to be his people because ultimately he wants to be in relationship with us. He wants to make us back into his people. The new covenant promise is a promise to have new covenant hearts. And it's where God makes this internal transformation possible. We don't just stay the same way we are when we're part of the new covenant, but God transforms us from the inside out. Now, uh, this is actually something that's in other parts of the Old Testament, and this is just kind of interesting to me. Um, in, in Deuteronomy, as the people of Israel are getting ready to go into the promised land, they rewrite, kind of remember, all of the Old Covenant. So the Ten Commandments, and then right after the Ten Commandments are given, we have this. God says, keep these words that I'm commanding you today in your heart. I think God knew all along that he wasn't just trying to make a bunch of rule-following religious people. I think God all along has been trying to bring people back into relationship with him and restore them, redeem them to his original goodness, right? Because he knew it wasn't going to be enough just to follow a lot of rules. Uh, it was going to have to be something that messed with our hearts. There's a psalm uh, that talks about a righteous person. And about that righteous person, the psalm says, The law of their God is in their hearts. Their steps do not slip. So if we want to follow God's ways, if we want to live in the way that God is calling us to live, it's not enough to just know the rules. We have to have God imprint them on our hearts. We have to let God mess with our desires and our motivations and our affections. Um, so 
the, the, the really cool thing about this is right after Jeremiah says that the law will be written on our hearts, he says, uh, I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. And what, what I see in this is for God, this is all coming back to, he wants people to know him. And not just know him, uh, what he's about, or have all the Sunday school answers memorized, right? Uh, he wants us to know him personally. And the way that happens is God starts to come into our hearts and starts to transform us. It, it changes our relationship with God. Now, we got to ask, how does this happen? How exactly does it work? And there's another uh, book that's, that's a, uh, there's another uh, book of, of prophecy called Ezekiel. Ezekiel uses some of the same language, but within a little bit different way. He helps us clarify how this happens. And through Ezekiel, God says, A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove, your heart, I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. Ezekiel also agrees that a part of this new covenant is God is going to do something in our hearts. But what's he going to do? It says right there that he's going to put his spirit within us. This is uh, talking about God giving us the Holy Spirit. And that's actually what changes our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit coming to live inside us. Now, uh, I, know, I know for some people, talking about the Holy Spirit is one of those woo-woo things. Like, we don't, we don't want to talk about it because uh, the people that really emphasize the Holy Spirit, they're kind of crazy, right? Well, I want to dispel that real quick. You know, it's easy for us to think that uh, we have Jesus. Some, some people focus on the Holy Spirit, but we got Jesus. And when we like Jesus. He's a little bit more predictable. Uh, actually, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are a package deal. And this is the way that we have to understand it, is when you place your faith in Jesus, you automatically have the Holy Spirit start to live within you. And you can fill in the gaps, go and read John chapter 3, Jesus talks to Nicodemus and he tells him about being born again, which is what happens when the Holy Spirit starts to live in your heart. Because you're, all of a sudden you have spiritual life, you're awakened, and the Holy Spirit living in your heart starts to change you, starts to do what Jeremiah said, which is to write the law on your hearts. Now, for me, um, I mean, I, th I think for a lot of us, it's really interesting to try to think back in our lives, to reflect right now, but also in the past. How have I seen the Holy Spirit transform my heart? I mean, maybe the scary thing is, could, could, could we say anything? I, I mean, as, as Christians who want to be a witness to the world around us, I hope we can say something. Uh, but, but, you know, thinking about that, one of the things I can point to, and I, I want to say this as an example of the way the Holy Spirit works. When I uh, was 17, I started to really place my own faith in Jesus. And I stopped going to church just because my parents made me. Um, I, I, started, uh, I started following Jesus because I encountered God and I started to realize there is nothing better in this life than knowing God. So I started to say, Jesus, I want to follow you and I really want to actually do it. I don't just want to have a good religious habit. Um, as, as I started to take steps in that journey, uh, the Holy Spirit, you know, was given to me, came to live in my heart, and one of the first things that happened that I noticed something weird is happening to me, I started to love my little brother. <laughs> and I'm serious, he's five years younger than me, um, and, I, and I love the guy now, but uh, when he was 13 or 12 and I was 17, 
That's, that is, I mean, you, you don't have two teenage brothers that just have this overwhelming love for one, one another very often. Uh, and I can just tell you from where I was, that was not something I could have willed myself to do. I, think, I, think, I just think my heart was broken enough that uh, that, that was not going to happen by my good efforts. Uh, so uh, just the power of God at work, I started to love my little brother. I started to want to care for him. I started to want to help him make better decisions in middle school. I started wanting to help him know God more. I made him listen to sermons with me and stuff. Uh, he, some of that he liked. Um, you know, the interesting thing is that uh, God will come and change our hearts in unexpected ways. And for me, that was God writing the law in my hearts. He was starting to uh, help me live into what God really had designed me to do and how God called me to live. The, the disclaimer I need to give you is that the process of the Holy Spirit writing the law in your hearts is not something that happens all at one time. It's not something that happens uh, in an instant. And then all of a sudden, the rest of your life is just easy. Sure, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do, and no sweat. I wish that were the case, kind of. What I've realized is that this is a journey that takes the rest of your life. And we've talked about that uh, recently, I think. We've talked about that discipleship journey, or sanctification is the big theological word. It means being remade, being made more holy. And it's something that only God can do in us. We can't do it ourselves. And so... Uh, you know, we want to be people who have new covenant hearts. We don't just want to be people who, who have a new covenant status. Thanks, Jesus. I'm glad I'm forgiven. And then we don't care how we live. We want to be people that live into the fullness of the new covenant. We want the law written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So what part do we have to play? Well, our part, my friends, is we have to open up our lives to God, invite the Holy Spirit to come in. We can't transform ourselves. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. But it is up to us to say, all right, God, I'm welcoming you into my life. Would you come in even to that part that I'm trying to hide from you right now? I know we all got those, right? So for me, uh, a question that I want to leave you with that, that has helped me on that journey. Uh, I heard a pastor once talk about this. He said, just one question you need to ask yourself that can help you understand what do I need to do to grow in my relationship with God? Um, Ask this question, what stirs my affections for Christ? So what stirs your affections for Christ? If I'm talking about me, and I can only talk about me, I think different people will answer this differently. You know, sitting in Scripture for long enough where I don't just brush past it, that, that stirs my affections for Christ. Uh, journaling, because when I journal, it's like I, I have an outlet to just pour out my heart to God, and then... After I've done that for a little bit, God starts to come back in and make me aware of what he's doing in my life. And I start to realize, oh man, God is so good. Um, being in a community where I can hear what God's doing in someone else's life, and I can share with others, what is God continuing to do in my life? I'm not done yet. Those things stir my affections for Christ. And so I wonder for you today, what stirs your affections for Christ? And how can you do that more? God invites us to be a people of the new covenant, not just uh, people who are forgiven and we have that new covenant forgiveness, uh, but people who are also growing into the image of God, who have new covenant hearts and have the Holy Spirit working in them. How will you grow and let God transform your hearts to give you that new covenant heart? Let us pray. God, we need you. We want to live in your ways, and 
by ourselves, we cannot do it. We're so thankful that you've provided uh, in the new covenant for us a possibility for real transformation, a possibility for heart change so that we can really be restored to the way you created us with a goodness that reflects who you are. God, I pray for all of us here today that you would give us perseverance for the journey to continue to press into you, to surrender even the hardest parts of our hearts uh, to you. Come and let your will be done in our lives, God. I pray that you would transform us, that you would align us with your will, and that you would use us for your purposes in the world, Lord, so we can be your people. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.